Well, good morning to you, Marberly Baptist Church. It is so good to be with you today. I'm grateful to God for his providence, his inconspicuous providence that has allowed you to uh, overwhelmingly vote for Dr. Andrew Bear to be your next pastor. Aren't you excited about the Bear family? We're so thrilled for them. I'm grateful to be his friend or that he allows me to be his friend. And if you're joining us online, thank you for joining us as well at this time. I'm grateful that he's chosen to be my friend because we're part of a friend group where they all went to the same college and I'm the outsider. I'm the goat among all the sheep, all right? And I'm grateful to be here today. I've missed my church family at Rock Hill. We're so thrilled to be here. But if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 15. John 15. Now, when the, when the uh, team asked me to come today to preach with you, it was because they wanted to find the worst preacher among Andrew's friends so that when he preaches, you'll be really impressed. So I know my role here, okay? And it's a holiday weekend. So this is like a double doozy, all right? Now, listen, in, uh, in life, uh, I don't know what happens to me, but in September, I begin to to think about the end of the year differently. There's 118 days left in the year. Yeah, let that sit in. 16 weeks when you begin to count all of them up. I did the math 18 different times because I was afraid I was gonna say the wrong thing. But when I begin to see the calendar change from August to September, my mind begins to turn to the end of the year. And I begin to even reflect on the last year and have I really actually accomplished anything that I was supposed to accomplish? I think back to those New Year's resolutions that have since been deleted from my memory, but I wrote them down and so I can go back and I look at them and go, well, I've done none of those things. I've got 118 days. There's a sense of which when I hear 118 days, 16 weeks left in the year, all the way to the New Year's Eve, when I begin to think about that, I begin to think about the word urgency. The word urgency is a familiar word for many of us because if you have young children, everything is urgent. Uh, In the middle of the night, when a child wakes up and says, I peed the bed, there's urgency, right? No, uh, okay, I'm all alone, that's all right. (laughs) When a child comes with an injury, there's a sense of urgency, right? Hopefully you haven't hit an artery, that's urgent, okay? But I think sometimes when we hear the word urgency, we begin to think about chaos, trying to accomplish everything all at the same time. The reality is, is with urgency, there's, there's really not a sense of chaos. Urgency is this idea of efficiency and being deliberate and being persistent towards the right things that are the priority. There's a sense of which urgency makes me begin to ask several questions. And when I begin to think about 118 days and 16 weeks left in the year, what am I going to do that really matters most? What am I going to do that matters most? Or maybe a different question, what am I going to stop doing so that I can do what matters most? Now, when it comes to urgency, Jesus was living and lived with urgency. Now, again, if you think urgency is chaos, you've missed the boat. You've missed, you've jumped the shark. You don't know exactly what urgency is because urgency is not chaos. Urgency is deliberate. It is intentional and is persistence towards the priorities. Jesus lived this way throughout his life. We know this even as a little boy. He stayed at the temple and his parents left him there for however long. So if you've ever left your child somewhere, you're not alone. Jesus was at the temple and they come back and say, what are you doing here? And he's like, I'm at my, doing my father's business. Jesus was urgent about the right things. 
In our text today, in John 15, it's the conclusion of several I am statements that Jesus gives throughout the Gospel of John. And in this particular one, Jesus is giving what seemingly is the last of the I am statements. Here, if we were working through a series, we would have gone through all the other ones, but today we're just going to land on this one because I have one shot and I'll never be invited back again. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John 15, and if you don't have it, it'll be on the screen, but what we like to do at our church is if you're there, will you say word? Okay, that was not good, and mostly because of my communication skills. So if you're, if you're there at John 15, will you help me know that by saying word? I am the true vine, is what Jesus says, and my Father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes, and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Verse 4, remain in me. Remain in me and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine. Neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, the one who remains in me, and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. It's one thing for you to understand what Jesus does, but it's more important for you to understand who Jesus is. It's one thing for you to understand what Jesus does, but it's another thing and more important for you to understand who Jesus is. We see it in verse 1, and if you like to write in your Bibles, and I encourage you to do that, Jesus says, I am the true, and that was the word I would circle, true vine. Now, for many of you in this room, you wouldn't have a connection to the word vine because you don't own a winery, <clears throat> unless you need to tell Andrew about something, but you don't own a winery. But vines, the word vine and the imagery of a vine was very common in the first century. And so the Jews would understand exactly what Jesus was saying here. The disciples particularly would understand what Jesus is saying here, whereas you may not have a deep connection to that word vine. In fact, the word vine was used throughout the Old Testament to describe specifically the people of Israel. So anytime you begin to see in the Old Testament the word vine, it's actually a connection and a description of the people of Israel. There's several times it's used throughout the book of Psalms. In Psalm 80, it's used to describe the people. You see it in Isaiah 5. It's used in Isaiah 5. But the problem with the word vine, when it's being used to describe the people of Israel, is that it's never done in a positive light. In fact, in Isaiah 5, it says that they're not good fruit, they're sour grapes. Sour grapes. In, Jeremiah, in Hosea 10, excuse me, Hosea 10, it actually says that they've multiplied their fruits, but their fruits are evil. Can you imagine? Then there's in Jeremiah chapter 2. In Jeremiah chapter 2, it describes the vine and the fruit of that vine. And that fruit is, as described, rotten. So you can imagine when, anytime you hear the description, hey, you're, you're like a bunch of vines. In the people that they would hear this, they would go, this is not good. In fact, what I think Jesus is telling us is our first point today. Jesus is what you could not be. Jesus is what you could not be. Here's what I'm getting at. 
Jesus says, I am the true vine. It's an amazing description here. Jesus is telling them, hey, you've been a vine. You've been unfaithful. You've forgotten me. You've not done what you're supposed to do. You've not lived the way you're supposed to live. In fact, all the fruit that you produce is rotten. All the fruit you've produced is sour grapes. All the fruit you've produced is deplorable. And all it does is multiply evil. But I, I am the true vine, meaning He's going to reverse the imagery from judgment to true fruit. He's going to reverse the imagery that is so negative and a negative connotation here and all throughout the Old Testament. He's going to reverse that imagery now and say, I am what you could not be. I'm the Savior. I'm the King. I'm the one who's come to redeem you. This is who I am. He's going to reverse this sense of description that goes against the people, that is a a word of judgment to the people, and he's going to imply to them that he is the one who can redeem them and save them. Jesus is who you could not be. See, I used to think that to be a Christian meant that you signed up for every Bible study and you served particularly during Thanksgiving and Christmas and you lived in a morally upright life and you always voted uh, the right candidate, never the left candidate, but always the right candidate. You just did all the right things. You're tracking. Okay. <laughs> but soon I realized that all those things that I would do just left me more empty than I was the day before. I would do all the morally right things. I would vote the right way. I would show up at the right events and serve in in all the different capacities. But then I began to realize that none of those things were actually satisfying my soul because they were done for a posture to display my righteousness instead of allowing his righteousness to shine through. I finally in my life had to come to the end of myself. And this is what Jesus is getting them to. He's saying, hey, listen, I am the true vine. You will not be able to produce fruit apart from me. You have to embrace me because you have to realize, you have to realize I am who you could not be. Did you know that your pastor is not Jesus? It's okay to say amen to that. (laughs) Andrew cannot be Jesus to you. Only Jesus can be Jesus to you. Only Jesus can satisfy your needs. Only God's word and Jesus through God's word, through your pastor can satisfy your soul. But if you come with the expectation that Andrew's gonna be Jesus to you, you've been mistaken. I've known him for a long time. He's a man of integrity. He's a man of character. He's a man of moxie. But he's not Jesus. Only Jesus can be Jesus. See, Jesus comes to these disciples and he says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. What he's telling the disciples and what he's telling you and me, only Jesus, only Jesus can be what you cannot be. But then he says something interesting in verse 2 and ends at verse 3. He says, every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more See, here, Jesus does what you cannot do. See, Jesus does what you cannot do. It's amazing to me, this passage, and it's why I believe in the inerrancy and perfection and the sanctification and the sufficiency and the authority of God's word. Because if I was writing the Bible, I would not have had this verse in there. You say, what do you mean? Listen, 
Jesus here is telling us that the father, he removes and he prunes. The father removes and he prunes. That doesn't sound fun. It doesn't sound exciting to sell a Christianity that says, hey, if you receive Christ as your Lord, he's gonna remove you if you don't bear fruit, and he's also gonna prune you when you do produce fruit. If I was writing the Bible, I would write something like this. God loves you so much, he'll give you whatever you want. That's what I would write. I mean, wouldn't you write that? Like it's not gonna be, you're gonna have any. If you come to Christ, your life will be easier. If you come to Christ, whatever you want, you just imagine it. He's like the genie. He'll give you whatever you want. He'll fulfill all your dreams. He'll succeed you in every sphere, sphere and, and element of your life. He's going to give you whatever. Just think of it. He'll give it to you. That's what I would write. We'd have packed houses if that was the case, wouldn't we? Our budgets would never be tight if that was the case. We'd have copious amounts of money. But see, I think we've commercialized the word blessed. We've made blessed to become monetary. We've made blessed to become how big is our bank account. We've made blessed to be how big is our budget. We've made blessed to be how many homes, how big is our home, how many children we have, how many grandchildren we have, how many great-grandchildren we have. We've made blessing to be a commercialized, materialistic version. And it's all anti of the gospel. See, because the gospel tells us that the blessed life is not just the accumulation of stuff or the accumulation of children or grandchildren, the accumulation of the things of this world that are so alluring but always leave us empty. That's not the blessed life. In fact, it might be that when you have an abundance of all these things, when everything is going great, when all the things that you've asked for happen, maybe just then that's not the blessed life, but God is actually cursing now, the reality is that God doesn't curse anybody, but the, the mentality and the re reality is that when we understand what true blessing is, we begin to see it just as he's described in verse 2. Jesus does what you cannot do for yourself, meaning he sees, when he does not see any fruit, he removes, but when he does see fruit, he begins to prune. Now, pruning is actually not just a biblical idea, it's actually scientific, that when you see something that's producing fruit and you cut it, it actually will develop more fruit. Why? Because it's not being weighed down by that fruit. It actually removes some of the, 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 the foliage that's getting in the way of, of greater growth. And so maybe in your life, when you're going through a difficult season, have you been in a difficult season, Moberly? Maybe the last two years was God's gift to you. Maybe the last two years was exactly what God had for Marlboro Baptist Church. And many of you may have complained, why is it taking so long? Or why won't he allow us to have a pastor? Or what is going on? But in reality, what God is doing is pruning you so that you will have greater days ahead than behind. And maybe this is the time and this is the moment that God has pruned you so that you can be the, the church that God has called you to be in East Texas. He prunes. He removes is not the Christianity I would have sold, but it's the one that Jesus declares. This is what the Father does. We can't prune ourselves. It's the Father who prunes us. We can't make this fruit to, to cut away. He does that for us. Why? Well, he does this because he loves us. He does this because he loves us. Now listen, I don't know you very well at all. I just met you 14 minutes ago. And I'm, what I'm about to say is going to come at great risk because I don't know you and you don't know me. 
But let me just tell you something. To be a Christian is to bear fruit. To be a Christian is to bear fruit. If you are not bearing fruit in your life and you claim to be a follower of Christ, you are not a follower of Christ. Now, this is important because then we have to describe what does he mean by bearing fruit? Well, he tells us in the book of Hebrews that if you uh, give sacrificially, if you, there's a way in which, excuse me, if you're, if you're worshiping the Lord in the midst of great suffering, he says it's in Hebrews 13, then you are bearing fruit. He says in Romans that if you are giving sacrificially in a sense of which you don't have much, but you're giving anyway, you are bearing much fruit. One of the greatest passages in all of this is from Galatians. Galatians chapter 5 where we hear about fruit. Now notice he doesn't say fruits of the Spirit. He says fruit of the Spirit because it's one singular fruit. But he describes it this way. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, meekness, and self-control above which there is no law. It's one of the greatest lists of all the lists when he describes fruit bearing. I don't know anybody who hears that list and says, hey, thanks for coming today, preacher. I'm doing really good. Goodbye. I think there's many of us that hear the list of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and meekness and self-control and go, oh. Because the reality is in all those different areas, although it's one fruit, in all those different areas, there's ways in which we need to grow. And see, if you claim to have love but struggle with patience, do you really have love? If you claim to have patience but aren't joyful, do you really have joy? And do you really have patience? The reality is to be a Christian is to bear fruit. And for us, when we have to look at this, we go, am I growing in these areas? Because because this is what Christ has commanded us to be. There's an urgency in this. Now notice he says in verse 3, he says, you, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. So he's speaking to the disciples saying, now don't, don't, think that, don't doubt your salvation here. Don't question whether you are saved. You need to know that I've already made you clean. But there's a sense of where you're not there yet is what he's telling the disciples. So Jesus is who you could not be and Jesus does what you cannot do. And then our last point, and I think it's the main theme of this passage, is you glorify God by bearing fruit. Look at verse 4. He says, remain in me. Remain in me. And I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. There's an urgency to hear that Jesus is emphasizing to these disciples, you need to grow in Christ. The word remain, or maybe your translations say abide. It's the most used word in this text, even all the way through verse 11. It's the main word throughout, but the main idea in the text is not remain. The main idea in the text is to grow. While the main word is to remain or to abide, the main, the main theme is to grow. The, the main idea is for you and I to grow. And the way and when we grow, we actually do what verse 8 says, we glorify God in the process. He says to remain. To remain is to mean being steadfast and to stay and to be near. In fact, your pastor said it differently, but I'm going to say it my way because I'm, I've been in East Texas longer. He said it real smart. I'm going to say it where I can understand. 
Jesus is less interested in what you do for him and more interested in you being with him. Now, he said it much smarter. You go back and listen to his sermon. Jesus is less interested in what you do for him and more interested in you being with him. Remaining is intimacy. Remaining is to be with him. This is why the the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. All of it begins with intimacy with God. Remain, remain, remain. How am I going to grow? Remain in me. How am I going to make it through this life? Remain in me. What should I be urgent about? Remaining in him. How am I going to make it to tomorrow through this hardship that I'm enduring? You remain in him. You are be a good branch grafted to the vine. And when you remain in him, you can't help but grow. I think often when we struggle with things in life, it's because we're not remaining in him. We've remained in what the culture has indicated. We've remained in what we think is best. We remain in what everybody is influencing us to do. When he has called us, it's very simple. Hey, here's what you need to be urgent about. Remain in me. You got 118 days left. Remain in me. What am I going to do over the next 16 weeks? Remain in him. How do we do that? Look, look at what he says. He says, remain in me. In verse 7, and my words remain in you. So if you look at verse 6, he says, if you don't remain in me, you're going to be cut out and you're going to spend an eternity separated. You're going to be where there's, there's a fire and they're burned. But if you remain in me and my, look at there, words remain in you. You, 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 need, you need this book, not, not here, but you need to hear. You, you, you don't need this book here, friends. You need it here. It makes me reflect on Psalm 1. Psalm 1 says, how happy are the ones who do not walk in the way of the wicked nor stand in the pathway of the sinner nor stand in the assembly or company of the mockers. Instead, they delight themselves in the Lord's instruction. They meditate on it day and night. They're like a stream that's planted beside flowing waters. The fruit bears out in its season. Whatever they do prospers. The wicked are not like this. They're blown away like the chaff. This is why the wicked will not, they will not stand in the day of judgment or gather in the assembly of the righteous. The Lord looks over the way of the righteous, but the The sinner, the wicked, their way leads to ruin. And you were once dead in your sins and your trespasses, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and were by nature children of wrath, carrying out the desires of the flesh and of the mind, just like the rest of mankind, among whom we all once walked. But God, who is Rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with him. Even when you were dead in your trespasses, you've been saved by grace. And he seated us at the right hand of the Father so that he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness and his grace that is found in you in Christ Jesus. For we are not saved by works, but by his grace so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Therefore, as Romans 5 says, 
We have been justified by faith that is found in Christ Jesus. We have obtained access to him through faith into the hope in which we stand in which we boast in the glory of the grace of God. We also boast in our afflictions. Boy, that doesn't preach well to a church. We're going to boast in our afflictions because affliction produces endurance and endurance produces proven character. And proven character, oh, proven character produces hope. And that hope, it does not disappoint us. Because the love of God has been poured out on us through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were helpless and at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one rarely will die for a just person, though perhaps someone might dare to die for a good person. But God displays his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, as Romans 8 says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And he says to us in Luke 9, 23, if anybody wants to come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. Here's the deal, friends. You need this book. If you want to remain in him, his words must remain in you. And when his words remain in you, you ask whatever. It's what verse 7 says. You ask whatever you want, and he will give it to you. Why? Because you're not going to ask for selfish gain. You're going to ask according to his word. And all of that leads to what he says in verse 8. And my Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Urgency. We attended a funeral this last week. A minister of the gospel had died suddenly, and he'd been in ministry for many, many years, a local church in our region. And one of our staff members was his great uncle. And so we, my wife and I attended the funeral, and it was a packed house. There was not a seat available in the room. Thanks be to God that my wife saved me a seat so I could sit by her. We got into that funeral and the preacher's up there and he's talking about this man's ministry and how he lived his life. And it was an amazing moment of testimony. I didn't, I'd never met the man. It was a moment where he said, if you had been impacted by this, this man, would you please stand? And the room was filled with people who stood. This man touched my life. The preacher got up and he began to to say something. He said, look, I'm going to read out the fruit of the Spirit. I know it's singular, but I just want to do a little exercise with you this morning. And he says, I'm going to say the word, and I want you to respond, yes, he was, if you saw that fruit in him. So one by one, love, yes, he was. Joy, yes, he was. Peace, yes, he was. Patience, yes, he was. Kindness, yes, he was. Meekness, yes, he was. Self-control, yes, he was. I don't know what's going to happen for you the next decade with plus with your pastor. And I don't know what's going to happen to you. I don't know if you've got 118 days left. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. But if we all gathered at your funeral, and the question was posed, did this person exhibit this fruit? What would be said? Would a room full be able to say, yes, he was? 
again, urgency. What are you going to do to take advantage of the opportunities you have? And what are you going to stop doing so that you can do what really matters most? None of that is possible, I believe, without a personal, saving relationship with Jesus Christ. See, Jesus came to this earth. Everything was perfect, but we rebelled against God. We chose to do our own thing. We did our own thing, but yet Jesus did not banish us out. He pursued us. He pursued us so far, he went to the cross. In fact, he shares with his disciples, I've come to seek and save those who are lost. So you may be here today, and you've never trusted in Christ as your Lord. You need to know today that without Christ, you won't be pruned. You'll be cut off. Maybe you're here today and you're walking through a difficult season and you are now beginning to realize this has been the best thing ever because God's pruning me so that I can grow more fruit. And it changes your perspective on the suffering you're enduring. And maybe today you need to ask God to forgive you because you've been angry at him for the pruning you've been under. Or maybe today you know somebody else that's walking through a difficult season. And before we leave here today, you need to go and pray with them. Or you need to send a text. Or you need to make a call. No matter what, none of us know how long we have. And if you want to trust in Christ today, we have counselors that are available. After the service, they'll be in the foyer. You go to that desk and you tell them, I need Jesus. Or maybe today you say, I need somebody to pray with me. And I guarantee you they will. Can we pray together? Father, we come and Lord, we're grateful for the gift that you have given us in Christ. And Lord, we know that the only way to be happy in this life is to be meditating on the Lord's instruction. Lord, help us today as we, in a moment, leave from here to be the people you've called us to be and do the things you've called us to do without reservation. And God, help us to be obedient. You are the true vine. We are the branches. May we remain in you and your words remain in us. For when we pray, everything we ask you will give. For in this you are glorified. Lord, we ask this in Christ's powerful name.